Now Eugene Christophe is a Tour de France cyclist and in 1913 he didn't get disqualified but he got a penalty for cheating. Now the reason he got a penalty for cheating Tom was because the forks on his bike broke. So he walked six miles with his bike on his shoulders, found a blacksmith. You weren't allowed to have any outside assistance at the time. Yeah. And so the tour organisers refused to allow the blacksmith to help him. So the blacksmith had to stand at the back and instruct poor Eugene Christophe on how to weld his bike back together. (laughs) At which point, the tour organisers gave him a 10-minute penalty for allowing a seven-year-old boy to operate the bellows. (laughs) (laughs) It's That Was Genius, isn't it, Tom? It is indeed. That was genius. How are you, Sam? I'm very good, thank you. Welcome, one and all. Welcome to our audience, to this little podcast where each week... Tom, who's the other guy in New Zealand, and I, Sam, in Britain, surprise each other with a historical story the other hasn't heard. What's our topic this week, Tom? The topic is cheating, Sam. Cheating is the topic. And just because the topic was cheating this week, Sam, I I hope you haven't been yourself mischievous. You haven't been cheating for the last seven days, so I hope there haven't been nefarious activities with your taxes. Do you know what, Tom? It's funny you should mention that. Because I just received a letter this morning telling me that I've forgotten to pay my tax. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know what we're going to be flipping to see who goes first. (laughs) Excellent. You've been getting very much into character, Sam. Uh, Haven't you, for this podcast? (laughs) Excellent work. You're like Dustin Hoffman. Method acting, Tom. Method acting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Excellent work. I've had great fun this week. I'm going to let slip, Sam, that I've been a bit naughty. I deliberately chose this topic because I knew from the outset what topic I was going to do. I was going to do cheating in the early years of the Tour de France because I love the Tour de France. Well, I've also been a cheeky boy in that I know very little about competitive sports, so I had to find a way around not doing sport while still doing cheating. Nice. Uh, so (laughs) So I've gone for political underhandedness. That'll do. Yeah. I've gone for an act of revenge, which I don't know if anyone in our audience, or indeed you, likes Game of Thrones. I suspect several do. That's the one. This act of revenge and of underhanded bastardicness puts the Red Wedding to shame. Excellent. I'm I'm putting it out there. It's probably one of the most horrible series of events that I've ever come across, so I'm thrilled to talk about it. Excellent. (laughs) Sounds like excellent, light-hearted entertainment. Bants. Good stuff. (laughs) Excellent. The bants will flow. Can you remember Robson and Jerome from the 90s? I do remember pop and acting duo Robson and Jerome. Absolutely. So for people who aren't familiar with British 90s popular culture, you've probably been... Here we go again. You've probably been Here lost. we go again. <laughs> yeah. That's the subtitle of this podcast, isn't it? Absolutely. You've probably been lost on a number of occasions with this podcast. But as Sam described, they were an acting duo and singing duo, and they kind of targeted elderly ladies. Housewives, yeah. They were the matinee idols. Yep, yep. With covers of Righteous Brothers songs and things like that. And they were very, very... Smooth cut. I thought you were going to say something entirely different beginning with C. (laughs) Smooth. (laughs) Your mind went in a strange direction there. Clean cut, I should have probably said. They were very clean cut, (laughs) had a very polished, clean image. And the guy that plays Jerome is the foul-mouthed Bron. That's it, Bron is Jerome. Did you know that? Bron is Jerome. And just the contrast is... Startling. Anyway, how did we get on to Game of Thrones? I can't remember. We were talking about cheating. That's right. And your topic, the Red Wedding. The real Red Wedding. Yes. Excellent. Absolutely. Right. Should we flip your tax return? Yes. Let's flip this. Sorry, HMRC. I will 
pay my VAT tomorrow. Would you like the side that says, you're late paying your VAT? Or would you like the side <laughs> that says, here's how to pay your VAT, and here's how to plan ahead in future? You, so you're you not disorganised crap. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I will have the, the latter. It's flipped. Would you believe, Tom, this is a first. It's landed on its side. Oh, wow. That's fate, which means we have to go together. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right, are you three, two, one? Oh, tour de okay, France. Tom, it's on to soil. Are we going to have to rock, paper, scissor it? This requires a level of integrity and honesty that I'm not sure either of us possess. Well, certainly not in this episode. But <laughs> I, think, I think that's fitting that in our cheating episode, we should trust one another. Should we do rock, paper, scissors? Okay. okay. Are we going to do it on the one? So you've got to go three, two, one, and then we both shout out after one, after one, what we've gone for. Got you. Okay. Three, three two, two, one. one paper. Fuck. Oh, that was surprisingly honest. <laughs> There's literally no way we could have cheated that. Scissors, paper, stone, and edit in whichever of those Tom didn't have. <laughs> right, Tom, I'm going to let you go first. Okay. I'm a big fan of the Tour de France, and I decided for this week to discuss cheating in the Tour de France. I can't think why, Tom. There's so few examples. <laughs> I know. Unsurpri- unsurprisingly. You must have struggled with your research for this one. My <laughs> yeah, God. My pile of notes. <laughs> what I've ended up doing, Sam, is I'm going to do half of my little piece on doping and another half on only one of the tours. And the doping segment, <laughs> I'm also going to keep to before 1980. Because if we start doing 1980s on onwards and we get into Lance Armstrong, EPO era... Operation Puerto. I was say, quite a lot of stuff got into Lance Armstrong over the years. Absolutely, yes. There's a, well, and everyone else in the peloton. So if we start talking about that era, man, we could do a whole series of podcasts on that era of professional cycling. So I thought I'd cut it at around 1980. But that still gives us around 80 years of Tour de France to talk about because the first Tour de France took place in 1903. And yes, it's been synonymous with cheating right from the outset. So first Tour de France was in 1903. By this point, professional cycling had already been a popular spectator sport for decades. So it was very popular in the late 19th century. For people who don't know about the Tour de France, I'd probably worth just summarising what it is. It's, I think it's the world's biggest annual spectator sport because millions of people watch it live lining the roads of France cheering on their their favourite riders. It's a massive, massive event, and it's what's called a multi-stage or multi-day race. So it takes place currently over 21 days. I'm fairly sure it's 21 days. I may have got that incorrect, with quite a large number of participants. Anyway, so let's talk about doping first. Um, Doping has always been associated with these people called soigneurs, who were basically, I think the analogy that I've, I've heard before is like a boxer's You know when a boxer is in the corner and they've got the one person who's just looking after them, taking out their gum shield, pouring water over the head, all that sort of thing. That's kind of your your soigneur for a cyclist. They're kind of your right-hand man. And they've always traditionally been the person who looks after the doping in cycling. And as I mentioned, right from the outset, there was a lot of dodgy substances being consumed by these professional cyclists. It is also actually worth noting quite early on here, Sam, and this is a bit of a cop-out, 
in the Tour de France, doping wasn't made illegal until actually 1966. Really? Yeah, so the first six years, it was... I suppose that was the big era of the beginning of sports doping, wasn't it? When it started to come into the Olympics and people started to realise, oh, actually, you can artificially enhance people. Well, it's actually been known way before that, but I think it really became professional in the 60s and I think steroids anabolic steroids came on the scene in the US in the 60s I think and slowly worked their way into American football baseball track and field all these sort of sports and this isn't something I researched but as far as I'm aware the US were always big on the anabolic steroids and it was the Soviet bloc that were big on growth hormone I may have got that wrong but I think that's the case and now they can take everything they can take growth hormones and steroids everything's available Despite doping not technically being illegal, there was a lot of dodgy stuff being consumed. And this, when you start reading up about this in the first half of the 20th century, this is like the wild west of nutrition. The dodgy, dirty, back alley, cutting edge <laughs> of nutrition. Because these guys really didn't know what they were doing. There isn't a lot of science behind this. This is dodgy back alley doctors suggesting that people take stuff that they've seen, you know, <laughs> makes a rat run quickly. It's just really, really... <laughs> well, in the early days, a combination of cocaine and wine was used to help people over the mountains, wasn't That's it? That's exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. Cocaine and red wine. And cocaine was a big, a big thing. A lot of cocaine-based substances, a lot of sniffing of ether as well that was quite common in the early years but definitely lots of alcohol which kind of you can see the reason behind that it dulls pain it was also you know if you go into the um, 1920s and then the 1950s France after the two world wars you know the quality of water I don't think was necessarily that good so you know drinking wine was probably a better way of getting fluids on board actually no it wouldn't have been a better way of getting fluids on board. No, it's, a terrible, but, it's a terrible but, um, way. You can see there was some degree of logic there. You know, it could well have been... <laughs> you can't. <laughs> um, drinking the water may have been equally as bad. Anyway, another thing that used to be taken in the early years was something called strychnine, which is known to cause convulsions, and it's actually used as a pesticide, but in minor doses as a stimulant. And there were a lot of stimulants being used in the early days of of cycling. In fact, stimulants were used right up until the 80s by professional cyclists. A lot of stimulants, as we'll come on to. 1924, we have an incident where a journalist called Albert Londres speaks very, very frankly with three riders, including the reigning Tour de France champion, a chap called Henri Pellissier, after all three of them were pulled out of the event due to a a row with the race organisers. And Henri Pellissier and these other two riders basically tell Albert Londres this... I don't know why I suddenly decided to do that in a Spanish accent. Albert Londres, that's more like it. That's more French. <laughs> Alberto Londres. Albert Londres, eh? Eh? <laughs> Get on your back and ride. Eh. This is definitely Mexican again. <laughs> oh, they're fine. Mexican and Spanish, interchangeable. So there's this, this term, convicts of the road, that gets coined by this journalist. These three cyclists show Albert Londres the contents of their pockets. They say, this is cocaine for our eyes. Now, this is chloroform for our gums. Quite why chloroform is for their gums, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure why cocaine's for their eyes, to be honest. No, no. <laughs> I, I, presumably it's something to do with sharpening their senses, I guess. Maybe that's why he says cocaine for our eyes. But chloroform, you know, you probably know is, is a sedative, something that stereotypically gets put on a cloth and put in front of someone's mouth mm. and make them pass out before they get murdered in a movie. It's also an anaesthetic. It also inhibits anxiety, generates euphoria. Sounds like a great night out. <laughs> Who needs the wine? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Inhibited anxiety, generation of euphoria, 
and um, sedation. And these, the cyclists say this is a liniment to put warmth back into our knees. And um, liniment's just like a, a rub, basically. So I don't think that's the dodgiest thing they were taking because, you know, you can get ibuprofen-based rubs nowadays, can't you, that just warm your muscles. Mm. They basically say they keep going on dynamite. And a lot of this drug taking is due to the sheer ridiculousness of what these cyclists have been expected to do. Back in the early, early 20th century, in the US in particular, there were races that took place in Madison Square Gardens. There were five-day races, and it was very simple. All the riders who took part basically had to do as many laps of a velodrome as they could in five days. That sounds bloody boring, doesn't oh, it? I know, I think exactly the same. It'd be incredibly dull. And you think cricket's boring for five days. I mean, you don't. <laughs> I think cricket's boring for five days. But, <laughs> but cyclists going around a velodrome for five days. Not a spectator sport, is it? No. Anyway, there's a quite a famous incident at one of these events where an American cyclist pulls out because he doesn't think it's safe because he thinks he's been chased by a man with a knife. And they basically were just <laughs> high as kites on stimulants because it was the only way they could keep going. <laughs> yeah, so he thought he was being chased around by a chap with a knife. I mean, that's going to make you go faster, isn't it? You don't stop when you're being chased by the man with a knife. It's true. He shouldn't have been complaining, should he? No, that's exactly the result he wanted. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's what his Sonia gave him the stuff for. He said, this stuff is great. It's going to make you think you're being chased by a guy with a knife. You are going, never going to ride quicker. Brilliant stuff. <laughs> Just pop this pill at the start of the race. Here's a direct quote for these guys, the convicts on the road. At night in our rooms, we can't sleep. We twitch and dance and jig about as though we were doing St. Vitus's dance. So they're just fucked. I also remember once going to an event where it was like it was like an award ceremony. I won't go into why because I lost fucking bastards. And <laughs> and on the tables there were there were free. <laughs> you were robbed of that rear of the year competition, Tom. <laughs> robbed. Absolutely. My, I know. Absolutely robbed. I felt shafted, Sam. <laughs> and on the tables there were these drinks that were marketed as like a sort of pick-me-up drink for they were clearly targeted at females who sort of felt tired and needed to just pick them up in the morning just to keep them going. I downed two of them, not realising what they were. They were just rammed full of stimulants, you know, legal stimulants, caffeine, taurine presumably, loads of other ones I think. And far out that night I was wired and I couldn't work out why. I just could not get to sleep. It was sort of five in the morning. I was just in a hostel room, just completely wired. Imagine what that's like if you're on a proper illegal stimulant. Jesus. <laughs> must be ridiculous. So anyway, incidentally, Sam, do you, do you get the reference, the St. Vitus's dance reference? St. Vitus's dance is uh, epilepsy, isn't it? Oh, it, it could possibly be. Not the route my research took me down. St. Vitus's dance, when I researched it, was actually a sort of mass hysterical dance, a dance mania. And it's a social phenomenon that was observed during the late Middle Ages and the early modern period where groups of people would just dance erratically. So you're completely right. I'm wrong. You're completely right. Just edit it out. So people would just dance erratically until they're too exhausted to carry on. It was just like a plague. In Strasbourg in 1518, it was called a dancing plague. And um, this is one of the more famous examples. Around 400 people danced for almost a month. And local authorities ended up providing musicians and stages thinking that people just needed to dance it out, you know? They just needed to get the boogie out of their feet. Get rid of that canned heat in your heels. <laughs> but, but that just made it worse. A quick Google actually has told me that the reason I thought St Vitus' dance was epilepsy is because St Vitus is the patron saint of epilepsy. There we go. That's good. It was at the back of the queue then. So I'm not editing out, I'm keeping it in. <laughs> it, was, it was at the back of the queue then, <laughs> when the sainthoods were being given out. Oh, there's some terrible sainthoods. I did an entire university module on saints. 
of various things. <laughs> the patron saint of lint. Almost better. Have you heard of St Francis of Rome, Tom? No, I haven't. Well, unlucky for you, because St Francis of Rome is the patron saint of traffic lights. Get in. <laughs> what does he look like? Does he have a red hat? An amber shirt? <laughs> he does, and some beautiful green booties. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a she... And the Wikipedia article, she is wearing, unfortunately, blue and white, which is very boring. But she is touching the head of a man who's dressed in green and red. So there we go. Patron saint of traffic lights. Declared the patron saint of automobiles and safe journeys in 1925. Well, that, that is pretty <laughs> odd, isn't it? That is pretty bizarre. So St Vitus, the patron saint of epilepsy. There you go. Um, so that's, that's what the St Vitus dance is, just mass hysteria. So that in itself could be a good topic to discuss in a future podcast. I saw that and thought, I'll put that in my back pocket of my rear of the year. Your runner-up rear of the year. Well, I didn't even get a runner-up. To be honest, I didn't even... <laughs> a worthy mention. I didn't even enter the competition. I just turned up with no trousers on <laughs> and was quite disappointed <laughs> when nobody would judge me. Uh, have you been listening in on my dreams? <laughs> anyway, the 1930 race of the Tour de France, it was actually in the official handbook to cyclists that the tour organisers wouldn't be providing the drugs and they would have to provide them themselves. So that's how accepted it was <laughs> in the 1930s. And as I mentioned earlier on, you know, this isn't technically cheating, but what it does do nicely is set up this culture in professional cycling of drug abuse and doing anything it takes to get through the tour, which is the background to the what most people will know about the Lance Armstrong era of doping. So in the 1940s and early 1950s, we have a really famous rivalry between two great Italian cyclists, a chap called Fausto Coppi and a chap called Gino Badali, who both won the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia, which is the Italian equivalent, on a number of occasions. Uh, Fausto Coppi is quoted as saying, those who claim that cyclists do not take amphetamine are not worth talking to about cycling. So he just says it's everyone knows. Everyone knows we're all taking stimulants and amphetamine. It's actually called La Bomba, these sort of cocktails of amphetamines that the cyclists take in the evening. The bomb. La Bomba. La 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 bomba. La 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 bomba, the stimulant that gets you over the mountains. La la bomba. So it's called La Bomba. And here's an, this is good fun. Bartelli would deliberately stay in the same hotels as Coppi and sneak into his room after he left and sift through his bins for evidence of his drug taking. So he knew he took drugs, they all took drugs. So he just wanted to find out what he'd been taking. I think also Coppi was renowned for being a bit uh, more advanced with his drug taking. So he was sort of being a little bit more scientific with it and being a bit more structured with it. Limited himself to one bottle of red wine a night. Yeah, and sniffing cocaine, injecting whatever else he could find. Injecting opium to his eyeballs. <laughs> yeah. So depending on what Bartelli found in the bins, he would predict how Coppi would go in the next day's race because he would look at what he's taken and from that he would know when Coppi was going to attack, how good he was going to feel, all these sort of things. It's good sportsman's analysis, that. Yeah, absolutely. It's just... It's... You pay a fortune for that today, for that kind of training insight. Well, Sam, you wait until I tell you about the 1904 Tour de France and you'll realise that this sort of behaviour by Bartelli in the 1950s is not a patch on what's, <laughs> what people were doing 50 years before. 1952... A doctor called Pierre Dumas joins the Tour de France. I think he was a, a judo fighter. And he was a key figure in early drug control, both in the Tour de France and in the Olympics. And he closely observed riders during this tour and spotted them injecting themselves quite commonly. In 1955, he was actually the first person to attend a cyclist called Jean Melejac, who collapsed off his bike close to the summit of Mont Ventoux. Have you heard of Mont Ventoux before, Sam? 
I have, yes. I come from a very keen cycling family, or I've married into a very keen cycling family. Mont Ventoux is fantastic. It's a huge, huge mountain climb. Probably, along with Alpe d'Huez, one of the most famous um, climbs in Tour de France history. And uh, my brothers and I cycled it in 2011. And it took me two hours, at an average gradient of 8 to 10%, to get to the top. It is a real grind. And that was on a hot summer's day. Just putting it out there, I bloody hate cycling up hills. <laughs> do you, well, you. I'm built for going quite fast on level ground. How heavy are you, Sam? How much do you weigh? Over ninety kilos. So I'm kind of ninety-two, ninety-threes, somewhere around, somewhere around there is my middling weight. So when I got married, my wife and I were, were both very active, and our honeymoon was at a sports training camp. Oh, anchor. <clears throat> You're right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Carry on. Yes, you're not wrong. And <laughs> they do a duathlon, which is a five, I think it's a 5k run, then a 10k or 15k cycle, then another 5k run at the end, which I did because I can't swim. So I didn't do the triathlon. Anyway, running part, absolutely fine. Cycle part, absolutely fine until we got to the big hill halfway up the course. And you cycle up this hill. It's not a big hill. It's five kilometers ish, five or six percent gradient, something like that. And I slowed down so much that I got overtaken by a dad giving his 10-year-old son a cycling lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. I literally got overtaken by a man teaching his son how to ride a bike. Caught them up on the way down. (laughs) (laughs) Gravity suddenly became my friend. (laughs) (laughs) I've been in a similar position, Sam. For three or four years, I road cycled as my primary form of exercise and did a, a number of very small low-key events uh, but I, I really don't have the talent for endurance sport I used to get really pissed off with doing these events and being overtaken by a female who was in their 60s and was probably about the same weight as me that used to really hit home that I was shit at endurance sports um, <laughs> also highlighted how bloody fit a number of Kiwis are some of these events yes. I did there were guys in their 70s completing the events faster than me it's just incredible how fit some guys were anyway so this cyclist, Jean Malijac, collapses from his bike close to the top of Mont Ventoux, this horrible but fantastic climb. And he'd been weaving all over the road before he collapsed. When the doctor, Pierre Dumas, gets to him, he's lying on the side of the road, completely unconscious, still pedalling with one leg connected to the pedals in a completely different world because of all the dope <laughs> that he's been taking. We've got a chap in 1960 called Roger Riviere who's trying to keep up with the race leaders on a hilly stage of a race and he was doing quite well so he gets to the top of this climb with the race leader and then on the way down the mountain he just couldn't keep up and he crashes horribly and it turns out he was so full of opioid based painkillers that he'd used to actually get up the hill that his reactions were so dulled on the descent that he just couldn't, he couldn't get his hands to squeeze the brakes quick enough. So, <laughs> so within minutes, he'd just gone off the edge of the cliff. Jesus. And this links us <laughs> This links us really nicely to the even more famous 1967 Tommy Simpson death. A British cyclist called Tommy Simpson, who was a very, very talented British cyclist, dies in a similar spot on Mont Ventoux, collapses off his bike. It was a very, very, very hot day in France and he was high as a kite he'd been consuming amphetamines and had heaps of alcohol in his system and it was just a heart attack as a result of severe dehydration and just total exhaustion and if you go up Mont Ventoux now there's actually a memorial to Tommy Simpson quite close to the top and that's 1967 so that was a year after drug taking was actually made illegal it's incredible what these people were doing it's absolutely just the risks they were taking with their lives we get into the 1970s then when drug taking has been made illegal and steroid abuse and amphetamine use is 
is just rife. And as you mentioned, I think it's the mid 60s that steroids come on the scene in the US and they probably quite quickly made their way across to the continent. But riders become a lot better at hiding the doping, or they actually they have to hide the doping because it's no longer legal. And there's a famous incident with a, a rider called Michel Polentier who gets caught with someone else's urine in a condom under his arm connected to a tube. So he's basically been asked by drugs control to piss in a pot. And um, he's got this massive contraption going up under his vest and he's basically squeezing this condom so that it looks like he's pissing out at the end of the tube with um, another rider's urine because he knows his urine is just <laughs> lime green. <laughs> That's just some nice examples. Obviously, we get into the 1980s and the 90s and it just goes AWOL. We got heaps of information about drug abuse in those eras. Anyway, other cheating, Sam. Now, I started looking into... I, I wanted to separate this into drug-based cheating and other forms of cheating. And I know there are some fantastic examples of other forms of cheating. But I started looking at the 1904 Tour de France, the second Tour de France, and there were so many hilarious examples of cheating that I didn't get beyond it, Sam. So as, a, <laughs> as an example of other forms of cheating in the Tour de France, we're just going to stick with the second ever Tour de France. Bearing in mind, cheating at the point where literally taking cocaine was still absolutely fine. Yes, so t- exactly. So you're getting banned from an event where you're allowed to take what the fuck you like. The race <laughs> officials are actually telling you, by the way, guys, you've got to bring your own gear. Ah, we, we don't give you it. You've got to bring your own juice. So 1904, second Tour de France. In the end, the fifth place rider is given the win after the first four get disqualified. (laughs) In fact, what basically happened is after the event, so many cyclists complained about cheating in the event that the French Cycling Union, how good is that, the French Cycling Union, investigated the event and in total 29 riders were punished and only 15 of the 27 who finished the race were not disqualified. (laughs) That's how rife cheating was (laughs) it was so bad that the race organizers promised to never run the event again they were just so pissed off with how dishonest all the riders were they thought i'm never going to do this bloody thing again it's a fine tradition (laughs) it's worth pointing out i think the 1903 tour de france was the first time someone had attempted to do a multi-day multi-stage cycling event across the country so it's usually been done on a velodrome and the moment you do it across the country there are so many opportunities to, to cheat because nobody's observing you and this is clearly what the riders picked up on or realized in the second edition of the event so first stage the race favorite a chap called Ukutere, finishes covered in blood a few hours behind everyone else because he had repeated mechanical problems with flat tires which is fairly well established to have been as a result of repeated sabotages from other cyclists two other riders garin and pothier who were leading the race towards the end, were attacked by masked men in cars. Um, Garin was also given food (laughs) by a race organiser because he was a big draw card for the the spectators, which in itself was illegal. Another rider was disqualified for... Oh, yeah, food. That's illegal. No, no. Cocaine, (laughs) absolutely fine. (laughs) He's allowed to eat his own food and sniff his own cocaine. I don't think he's allowed to be given it by the race organisers. Another rider is disqualified for sitting in a car for 45 minutes of the race. <laughs> and a number of others are caught slipstreaming vehicles. And for those of you who don't know about cycling, you get a massive advantage if you slipstream. Something like 30% easier. Stage two, a rider leads the race through his hometown 
200 residents of that town then block the road behind him and prevent any other riders from getting through. (laughs) One rider in the incident is knocked unconscious and breaks a few of his fingers. Further on, there's broken glass nails spread all the way across the road and there are allegations that actually some of the riders are, are throwing these... I mean, this is like wacky races, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Or like Mario Karts. People are throwing nails and and broken glass out of their vehicles. Later in the stage, this chap called Garin, who I mentioned a moment ago, is attacked and finishes the race with one hand. I think he's broken his wrist or something, being attacked by a spectator. In the third stage, the tour reaches Nîmes, the hometown of another rider who had already been disqualified for cheating. And so the residents of Nîmes block the streets and start throwing rocks at the cyclists. <laughs> and again, there are more there are more glass nails spread out. I'm a stickler for tradition, Tom. I think we should bring this back. Bring back wacky races. Take the tour back to its roots. <laughs> yeah, free for all. Just a potter on a bike through repeated French rioting. Yeah, well, yeah. So fourth, fifth and sixth stages, because there's only six stages, were uneventful, but not really uneventful there was lots going on but unfortunately we don't know a huge amount about the details and that's because the original files from this investigation from the french cycling union were lost during the second world war but rumor has it that lots of the riders were actually taking trains when race (laughs) organizers weren't around so they would literally hop on a train from town to town then get back on their bike they were getting lifts in cars you've got to put this in the context of the prize money here as well there was a lot of prize money for the winners and so everyone was desperate and a lot of the people taking part as well in these early tours were not anywhere close to being professional cyclists they were just journeymen they were guys who read this in a newspaper and thought fuck it, i could do that <laughs> yep i've got a bike <laughs> I know someone who's got amphetamines. <laughs> All you need is a bike and some speed, Tom. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. They were even getting towed by motor vehicles, and, and there were rumours of riders having uh, pieces of string attached to a cork, and they would have the cork between their teeth, and they were getting towed by a vehicle that was sort of you know 20 metres ahead of them, but it didn't look like they were being towed, and they were being pulled by the teeth. <laughs> Christ, you'd get to the end of that looking like a freaking duck, wouldn't you? Itching powder as well. If it doesn't get any more comical sound, there are allegations of people putting itching powder in each other's shorts. <laughs> it's like a children's book, isn't it? A children's comic book. I really want this tour to come back. I like this version of the tour. This could be an excellent film as well. I'm surprised this hasn't been turned into a comedy. Just the 1904 Tour de France. But anyway, that was the 1904 Tour de France, a fantastic example of how rife cheating was in the early days of professional cycling. Wonderful. Can I give an honourable mention, Tom, to poor old Eugene Christophe? Who's Eugene Christophe? Now, Eugene Christophe is a Tour de France cyclist, and in 1913, he didn't get disqualified, but he got a penalty for cheating. Now, the reason he got a penalty for cheating, Tom, was because he was cycling down one of the mountains and his handlebars broke, the forks on his bike broke. So he pulled over at the side of the road, walked six miles back the way he'd come to find a blacksmith. Yeah. (laughs) He was in the lead, by the way. At this point, by this stage, he was no longer in the lead. So he walked six miles with his bike on his shoulders, found a blacksmith. You weren't allowed to have any outside assistance at the time. Yeah. And so the tour organisers refused to allow the blacksmith to help him. So the blacksmith had to stand at the back and instruct yeah. poor Eugene Christoph on how to weld his bike back together <laughs> which took three more hours so by this time he'd lost about nine hours at which point the tour organisers gave him a ten minute penalty for allowing a seven year old boy to operate the bellows <laughs> <laughs> to be honest there are, there are elements of these early tours that I think should be brought back I love the fact that the riders had to 
take with them all their mechanical stuff and they had to perform their own mechanical work on their bikes. I just think that's just hilarious. And you see the pictures of them, don't you, with with inner tubes wrapped around them. Yes, like just hauling five or six spare tyres with them, yeah. The early gearing as well. So the race organisers in the early days thought that gearing was cheating. (laughs) As opposed to taking gear, which is fine. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah, I know, it's bizarre, isn't it? They thought it was against the spirit of the sport to have gear. (laughs) So in these early days, you had a rear wheel with two sides that so had two gears. So you had a, a flat gear and a, and a hill gear. And when you got to the base of a hill, you'd have to get off your bike, take the back wheel off, turn it around, put it back on again and go up with that gear. Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff, but highly entertaining. Wonderful. Well, Tom, I'm going to talk about something very different. <laughs> Rather than go for sporting cheating, I have gone for an act of political subterfuge and general dickishness on a monumental scale. I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about it. You're building this I up. I know, I am. I'm going to talk to you today, Tom, about Olga of Kiev. Olga? Or rather, Saint Olga of Kiev. What was she the patron saint of? I don't actually know. Socks with holes in them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she's a very, very highly regarded saint in the Orthodox Church. She's okay. very senior. So I assume she's in charge of something really important. Like vodka, I don't know. So St. Olga of Kiev and the Drevlian Uprising is what I'm going to talk to you today about, Tom. Mm. I'm going to take you back to the Kievan Rus and the year 945 AD. It's been a while since I've gone medieval and going fully medieval is exactly what this story is about. As I mentioned, it's on a Game of Thrones red wedding level of of destruction. In fact, it makes the red wedding look like a teddy bear's picnic top. So most of our history from around this time comes from a book known as the Primary Chronicle or the Tale of Bygone Years, which is a collection of histories of the Kievan Rus in this area around Ukraine and Belarus and Russia between 810 AD and 1110 AD. And it was written in Kiev in 1113. Uh, There's several manuscripts of this book survive and there's an English translation as well. They all come from a bit later and it's a slightly dubious source because the dates are completely mucked up in it. <laughs> so it's, it, you take it with a grain of salt. But it's basically a, a history of folk tales and politics from around this time in, in Eastern oh, Europe. Oh, good, you've had a bit of... So you've, you've been reading the source, have you? I've gone saucy, oh, yeah. Oh, saucy I've gone saucy Sam. this week. Saucy oh, Sam, oh. indeed. Erogenous. Er- erogenous. <laughs> oh, yes. Hmm. <laughs> Ancient Ukraine. <laughs> now... <laughs> Sorry, I was, was going to make a euphemism, but I realised that euphemism didn't work. <laughs> Go on. I was just trying to shove a euphemism Shame quickly yourself. before you carried on, but it didn't actually work. Do it. Give no. us the euphemism. It was going to be something along the lines of up your Rus, you know. Uh, <laughs> but because you're right, that didn't work, no, did it? It looks. It looks <laughs> like it should. When you picture the word Rus, it looks like ass. No, no, it doesn't, does it? No, it, it didn't work on any <laughs> level. No. Okay. Come back later. Have a think. So the Kievan Rus was a kind of a loose federation of states centred on, unsurprisingly, Kiev, from about 880 to around 1240 when it collapsed under the Mongol horde. At its height, it was absolutely huge, stretching into Finland and across most of Eastern Europe from the Arctic Ocean all the way down to the Black Sea. So it took in about half of Western Russia, most of Ukraine and all the Baltic states. So a really, really yeah, pretty big, big place. Yeah, pretty big, And from 914 AD to 945 AD, it was ruled by a guy called Igor of Kiev. Igor. I immediately thought Ghostbusters. Yes. I I wouldn't be surprised if this guy was doing a bit of haunting, given how he ended up. (laughs) 
you did well. You, you did very well to take my random comment and try and bring it back on par, back on track. Most people, I, Sam... I, I do try. You are very polite. Most people would have just dismissed it as a stupid comment and carried on, but you desperately tried to please me. <laughs> I just want you to feel like you're involved, Tom. <laughs> Can you name the other Ghostbusters? Oh, Ray Parker Jr. Was that the actor or was that the name of the actual Ghostbuster? That's the actor. Yeah, no, that doesn't who count. Who sang I Ain't Afraid of No Ghosts. I Ain't Afraid of No Ghosts. There's Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. Yes. Oh, who... Uh, you always ask me this. Whenever anyone asks me to name anyone, I go completely mind blank. Well, Bill Murray plays Peter Venkman. Dan Aykroyd plays Ray Stantz. Who was Egon? Egon was played by Harold Ramis. So it's Egon Spengler. That's right, if I remember correctly. And um, <laughs> and the hotel manager was played by Michael Ensign. Can you remember... Are you reading this off Google <laughs> now? Or are you just... Um... <laughs> Or do you just have a level of Ghostbusters knowledge <laughs> that no human should have? Oh, really? No, I, I was reading that. I was reading that. I was. I did a sneaky Google. Nice to know you're paying attention. <laughs> anyway. Oh dear. I'm done being polite. Shut up. <laughs> Igor of Kiev. Igor of Kiev was a greedy bugger. He, he liked war. Particularly, he liked attacking the Byzantine Empire and besieged Constantinople a couple of times, which was expensive. And he had other lavish tastes, which meant he was consistently and constantly demanding tributes and cash from other principalities and tribes of the Rus. Uh, incidentally, the Kievan Rus is where Russia and Belarus get their name from. There we go. Shot with a fact gun. I thought it was twat me with your fact stick. Uh, yes, well, we've evolved, Tom. We're in the era of facty firearms. <laughs> I'm going to shoot my factillery at you. AK-57. Yes. <laughs> no more mine. Like a claymore mine but with more knowing. <laughs> so anyway, one of the tribes of the Kievan Rus was the Drevlians, which translates as forest people. Now, they hated the Rus. They were fiercely independent, but had been subdued over time as the empire grew and were forced to provide cash and troops to Kiev. And they were not happy about this at all. And in 945, Igor rocked up to their capital, which I'm going to pronounce wrong. It's uh, Iskorosten and demanded tribute for the second time in a month. The locals were pissed and decided that enough was enough. They were having their food, their money taken from them. And at this point, we get a pretty graphic description of what happened to poor old Igor, Igor from a guy called Leo the Deacon of Byzantium, who was writing several years later. And have a guess at what these guys did to poor old Igor, Tom. How did they get a hold of him? He just rocked up at town and, and they rebelled and, and seized him. What an arrogant toe rag. He just assumed he could turn up and to ask... I'm assuming he had some unnamed blokes with him who were fairly quickly killed off. Yeah, who clearly didn't do their job very well. <laughs> yes. OK, so what did they do to him? Have a guess what they did to him. Is it as bad as being hung, drawn and quartered? Yeah, well, in a similar... Yeah, I, I reckon it's probably equal to. Who was that Viking that used to pull people's lungs out the back of their body make them look like angels something blood axe Ooh, i don't know about that it's probably not that bad no, I mean, probably that's not that that's bad. pretty horrendous isn't it so what they did tom is they got two big tall birch trees and they bent them over towards each other and staked them into the ground <laughs> where is this going <laughs> christ <laughs> they took igor's legs igor's legs and tied Ooh. each one to a tree oh and then they uh, removed the stakes ripping him clean in half far out i know right Shit. Ouch. 
I told you a medieval story. And presumably, you know, this wouldn't have been the first time, would it? Probably not the first treeing someone had been given. Yeah, exactly. What do you call that? Well, there's still a tradition today in Russia of birching, which is basically hitting someone on the back with a birch twig during a massage. So I imagine it's it's a sanitised version of that. (laughs) Call it birching. Call call it (laughs) birching. Who thinks these things up? You'd have thought early on he would have twigged that that was going to happen. Hey... I'm surprised he stuck around, stick around. No, that didn't work. Did, <laughs> did the Drevlians branch out into any other forms of death? Did you get to the root of the problem? <sighs> Sorry, shall I leave it now? I would. Any more? <laughs> so, this uh, fairly unfortunate affair left his wife, Olga of Kiev, in charge of the country. Until their infant son, who again, I'm going to pronounce wrong, Sviatoslav, was old enough to take power. Now, Olga of Kiev, Tom... Saint Olga. No one's quite sure when she was born because the Primary Chronicle puts it at 890 AD. Now, I said a few minutes ago that the Primary Chronicle does get its dates mixed up. Had she been born in 890 AD, as the Chronicle said, she would have given birth to her son at 65 years old. So probably not then. (laughs) Chroniclers don't have many jobs, do they? And probably one of the more important ones that they need to focus on is getting the dates right. Yes. Pretty shoddy chronicling. It is. I'll write back and have a word. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, yeah, the dates are all very confused in this in this book. But it was written, you know, 150-odd years later and translated and rewritten several times down the centuries. But anyway, she was born sometime around 900 AD, St. Olga. She was the first Kievan ruler to become a Christian and was later made a saint because of this for her actions in spreading the faith through Eastern Europe. In fact, she's known in several Orthodox churches as being of equal standing to the apostles so very very senior oh wow but at this point her actions were anything but saintly tom (laughs) because uh, when it comes to the drevlians and what they did to her husband good old christian forgiveness was not on her mind (laughs) she wanted revenge and she got it this is where it starts to get really dirty and quite devious and and cheating to get us back on the topic of the week so, after Igor's death, the Drevlians sent out an envoy to Olga, offering peace in return for her remarrying and marrying their ruler, a guy called Prince Mal, essentially handing over the Kievan Rus in return for an alliance. So, the Drevlians sent out 20 of their best and most senior men of the court to Olga with the proposal. She heard the proposal and then had them all buried alive. In fairness, that's quite a step from the Drevlians, isn't it? It's a bold move. Yeah, absolutely. We've just killed your husband in a really very creative and gruesome way. Yep. Let's have a drink. How about it then? Yeah. uh, yeah. (laughs) Well, absolutely. I I guess their thinking was, well, your son is an infant. You're just a woman. What are you going to do? You need some stability in your life and we can offer it. Unsurprisingly, Olga thought that this was a little forward and responded by burying these 20 senior men of the court alive. Mm. Slightly brutal, but there we go. What she then did was send word back to the Drevlians that she accepted their proposal, but would need their wisest and most distinguished men to come and meet her in order to, firstly, to flesh out the details, who gets what, and secondly, to convince other tribes to accept the deal as the wedding procession passed through their various territories. So as Olga marched to meet Prince Mal, she needs some Drevlians to say, yes, the war is over, it's all fine. What a sneaky, sneaky, conniving, sneaky sneaker. Yes, indeed. What a bitch. Great, the Drevlians thought. This is fantastic, what a good deal. So they sent their best governors and administrators to meet with Olga. And when they arrived, she gave him a nice warm welcome, Tom. 
She gave them food, she gave them something to drink. Everyone was having a lovely time. And then she offered them a trip to the local bathhouse to relax after their long journey. Not suspicious at all by now because they'd been very warmly welcomed and started planning the wedding, they all accepted. And once they were inside the bathhouse, what did she do, Tom? Filled it with fairy liquid. <laughs> that, and then she burnt it to the ground with everyone inside. Ooh. Buried and then burned. She's having quite a good time now. We've had this before, haven't we? We've had full-on Kill Bill. I think it was Odysseus uh, yes. and Telemachus. Far out. She's going Kill Bill. It gets worse. This is not even Kill Bill. This is stage two of four. This is Liam Neeson. This is Taken, isn't it? This is probably the plot of Taken 5. Yeah, she's a woman with very specific skills, is Olga. <laughs> yeah. Deep Northern Irish accent. Are you going to come to Ukraine? She made a legitimate request for a marriage. Anyway... <laughs> With the best and brightest of the Drevlian government now six feet under or turned to ash, she invited the rest of Drevlian high society. Had they not got suspicious yet? Well, clearly not, because... <laughs> Nobody ever comes back from Kiev. No, they're having such a wonderful time, Tom. <laughs> yeah. They have a nice relaxing bath, they're planning the wedding, it's all lovely. So, she says to the rest of Drevlian high society and the rest of the Drevlian government, come over... And as a final act of putting the past behind us and moving on, we'll have a funeral feast for my late husband. A final act of respect before I marry Prince Mal. And of course, the government accepted, probably because there was no one left to warn them against it. So the best and the brightest were all very dead. And again, when they arrived, Olga did everything she could to make them feel at home. There was a huge feast and her personal slaves and servants waited on the guests hand and foot until it got very, very late in the day. And once the Drevlians were all blind drunk or asleep, she had her troops surround the feast and slaughtered every single guest. 5,000 people in all. Wow. Absolute massacre. <sighs> so that's stage three of her revenge. 5,000 people. Pretty much the entirety of the Drevlian aristocracy killed in one fell swoop. This is kind of ethnic cleansing, isn't it? Yes. She's getting rid of the whole bloody tribe. And this is stage three of four. And she got made a saint. And she got made a saint. <laughs> is this what the, she's the saint of? She's the saint of ethnic cleansing. Mass murder. <laughs> Not far wrong. Pol Pot loved her. Pol Pot had a little <laughs> necklace with St Olga. So who's left, Tom? Who's left to kill? God, the peasants? Who is left? The pigs? Yes, Tom, the peasants. <laughs> So, according to the Primary Chronicle, what she did next is she marched back to the Drevlian capital, Iskorosten, I've said that wrong again, I'm sure, and put the city under siege. But she offered the local people a choice. Either be slaughtered or starved by our troops, or every household in the city has to bring out three pigeons and three sparrows as a peace offering. That's very nice of her, isn't it? Three pigeons and three sparrows. Yeah, you know, like bringing out doves of peace. You bring me bring me some songbirds as a sign of your surrender and your goodwill and we'll let bygones be bygones. We'll put the whole thing behind us. Fuck, I bet there was a panicked rush to get the birds. You're damn right, Tom. <laughs> damn right. So the locals thought, oh, brilliant, this is great. And so they dutifully collected up every single bird in the city, pretty much, and brought them all out to her. And she said, oh, wonderful, OK, the siege is lifted. You can all go about your business. And so everyone went to bed happy. Now, Tom, this is where it gets so unbelievably underhand that I am frankly impressed at her ingenuity. What she did was she got her soldiers to take all of these birds and around the legs of each one she wrapped a piece of sulphur 
in dried cloth strips and tied these little pieces of sulphur in very dry cloth Get out of here. around the legs of every bird. Get out of here. I know where this is going. And once it got dark, what did she do, Tom? She put them all in a massive pie. <laughs> <laughs> she did. And made them eat it in a gluttonous feast of feastiness. They died Until of Until they attacks. literally popped, yes. Popped. <laughs> Precisely. Precisely, in fact, not what she did. But going back to your pie metaphor, she did indeed bake the city. So once she tied sulphur and rags around the legs of all these birds and it got dark and everyone had gone to bed, she set them all on fire, Tom, and let them fly back into the city. And all of these birds flew back to their nests, which were in the eaves of all of the thatched cottages in the town. And so in one foul swoop, thousands of flaming birds were released, immediately returned home, and the entire city, in the space of minutes, went up in flames. How come nobody has ever used that tactic since? Well, fire... I mean, firebombing is certainly a thing. <laughs> but the birds... Brilliant. I know. Well, I think because all of these cottages were thatched cottages with wooden frames, she knew that they would go up very easily. Again, this is similar to a, one of our previous podcasts, wasn't it? It was Hannibal. Wasn't it Hannibal who set alight to a load he of did. cows? He did. He set alight the bull's horns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sent them up the hill. These clever, clever generals. She might well have learnt from Hannibal's military prowess. But at any rate, the entire town burned down within minutes and the population fled where they were pretty quickly rounded up. And she killed most, gave away the rest of the slaves to her followers and released a few to send a message and to spend the rest of their lives paying regular, really quite punitive tributes back to Kiev. So the few who survived were taxed to the hilt for the rest of their lives and lived a pretty miserable existence by all counts. So there we go. The Revenge of St. Olga of Kiev, which I think in diplomatic circles probably counts as cheating, I would say. There's a repeated theme of not being envious of other periods of history. Medieval times generally, not good. No. Medieval times in Eastern Europe, I think probably worse. Yeah. You'd certainly want to be on the right side, wouldn't you? And I don't think many people were. And those who were, there was still a risk of them being strapped to two birch trees and split in two and having half their body in Spain and the other half finding its way to Japan. Mm. As, as a spectator <laughs> to this death, do you think when it happens, they all look up in the air and go, ah, ooh, <laughs> ah, <laughs> and then suddenly all the blood starts flying in their faces. And... <laughs> ooh, yeah. yeah, a dark ages <laughs> pinata. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If only he was full of sweets. His lavish taste, he probably was. So do you think Turkish delights just got flown everywhere? <laughs> <laughs> Quick, kids, wipe it down, it's still good. <laughs> Three second rule. Hmm. <laughs> 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 but anyway, yes, the revenge of Saint Olga. <laughs> That's a brilliant image. It should be said, actually, she didn't. She converted to Christianity at some point after this. <laughs> Whether it was because she felt sorry about it. Oh, because the Christians were the only <laughs> ones that were willing to take her. Yes, you've apologised for your sins. You are forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Why don't you come to my church and you can convert me there? Got a lovely bathhouse nearby. Turkish delight, anyone? <laughs> <laughs> That's a revolting story. Uh, did you come across any indications of how accurate this is well modern historians have their doubts about just how accurate this is the events probably did happen there's plenty of archaeological evidence 
of many, many horrible things happening in this part of the world at the time. Lots of bent trees. So there's no shortage of bodies <laughs> and, uh, and burnt houses, yeah. unsurprisingly, from medieval times. And there are several chroniclers who write about the events surrounding it. So the Drevlian uprising, almost certainly real. The exact happenings up for debate. But it's a great story. Let's go with the source. It's only a podcast, isn't it, Sam? It's not a bloody dissertation. We can have a bit of fun. We can ignore... A few facts. A few facts. What would you be the patron saint of? Oh, very good question. I'm the, of what, Bob? The, the, the pump. <laughs> we alluded to the fact earlier that you like pumping weights, so I thought you could be the patron saint of the pump. Oh, I see. The patron saint of swole. Did you, did you think I was referring to bike pumps or the northern phrase for farting? I couldn't quite understand what you were saying, bob or pub. <laughs> the bob. I could be the patron saint of something less popular and then I'd have more of a chance of getting it. Okay, hang on. You can be the patron saint of wrestling, Tom. Who's that? Patron saint taken? of wrestling? Oh, no, that'd be good. Oh, that's... Patron saint of... Oh... Are you, no, are you looking? Are taken. you currently Sorry. Googling the patron saint of wrestling? Yeah. Uh, put... Saint Sebastian. Sorry, mate. And Arnold of Soissons is the patron saint of beer. They're good. They're taken. All the good ones are taken, patron I swear. Patron saint of wrestling is who? Patron saint of wrestling is Saint Sebastian. Oh, okay. Not Saint Macho Man Randy Savage. What's <laughs> <laughs> Saint, Saint No, Hacksaw's... nor is it Saint Can You Smell What The Rock Is Cooking. Hacksaw <laughs> Jim McDuggan or whatever his name was. Right, what are we doing next week? Let's throw some shit into the wall and see what sticks. Resistance. Resistance, as in resistance movements, That's a good one. like a little resistance. Ah, Rene. <laughs> ah, it is I. It is I, Rene. <laughs> it is I, Leclerc. Good. Yeah. Let's fine. Let's do resistance, just because we haven't done enough bad French accents. The painting of the Lady Madonna with the big boobies. Oh, hello, hello is genuinely, I think, my favourite TV series of all time. <laughs> It's so stupid and so wonderful. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's another classic British sitcom from back in the day. But this one has aged beautifully. It will continue. It's set in, yeah. it's set in Resistance France in World War II. And it's very silly catchphrase comedy. And it's beautiful. <laughs> and everyone speaks in ridiculously strong accents but can't understand each <laughs> <Yeah>. other. <laughs> but which of these Germans has hidden the submarine batteries in his trousers? <laughs> There's just one German officer in the background going... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. And there's there's an undercover British spy who thinks he speaks fluent French, but speaks really shit French. Who can't can't speak French. (laughs) Good morning. morning. (laughs) I was pissing by your door when I heard a couple of shots. (laughs) Brilliant. Hello, hello. Highly recommended. Perfect. <laughs> a heartfelt recommendation from all the team. That was genius. I'll give you a teaser, Sam. I was training a lady from Norway, and I was talking about uh, with her about the Norwegian resistance movement during the Nazi occupation. So that's what I'm going to go down. That's the route I'm going to go down. There are some excellent stories. Marvellous. Excellent stories from that era. Well, I'm just going to stick with hello, hello. But that sounds good to me. Anything that has just happened is classed as history. So you can do the history of hello, hello. <laughs> I'm very happy for you to do Beautiful. that. Right. And on that note, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. We've had an absolute ball this week. I've had fun. I hope you've had fun, Tom. I have had uh, lots of fun, Sam. Thank you very much.
Good. You're contractually obliged to say that. My e- <laughs> it's been a joy spending my evening with you. Marvellous. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please do subscribe to us on your platform of choice. Maybe leave us a little review and a comment as well on iTunes or any of the others where you can leave reviews. That would be wonderful. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can. You can email us, uh, thatwasgeniuscast at gmail.com. Yes, it's a free email address. Or you can search for That Was Genius on most social media platforms and you'll find us there, shitposting history memes. Um, oh, I forgot to mention the T-shirts. You can also win a T-shirt by sharing one of our episodes and tagging us in it on your social media platform of choice. There's still T-shirts to be won, so do get sharing our stuff and tell your friends about us. And on that note, we will see you next week for a delve into resistance. Au revoir, monsieur. Until next week, bye-bye. <laughs>